Thank you, Kathy. Well, good morning, ZPC. I have to tell you, the over-under on attendance at the 9 o'clock was 50. So you guys have done a good job. You've uh, overcome that. Um, you know, it is hard when we skip an hour. Uh, it is my least Sunday, my least favorite Sunday to preach. Uh, I don't know why I did not have Scott do this today. Um, but you all are the hardy ones. You're the ones who wake up and you see that there's an hour less sleep and that there's snow outside and you could easily just kind of turn, you know, over and go right back to sleep. And you guys couldn't go back to sleep as much as you tried. And so you came and that's wonderful. We are super excited uh, to be here this morning. We've been waiting for this day, of course, for many different reasons. Uh, one of them, of course, is because of this evening uh, when we have... Um, our property informational meeting. We've been uh, looking forward to this for several years now, and uh, and tonight there it is. And so uh, hopefully you RSVP'd already for the dinner. That's at five o'clock. That will be from five to six. Uh, if you didn't, um, please still come to the meeting. The meeting begins at six o'clock. Uh, we're going to do our best to keep it to about an hour and a half. Um, we know that there will be questions. We won't uh, address those in group form tonight, we, but we will do that over two different sessions, one um, at, uh, on March 15th, so this coming up Wednesday, and then one the following Thursday, a week, uh, eight days later on the 23rd. And then again, just remembering that we have one service and only one service in two weeks on the 26th, and that's going to be at 10 o'clock, and then we will have our congregational meeting where we can together vote uh, on whether or not we want to move forward with what leadership has recommended, uh, and so we look forward to seeing you all then. And again, please remember, even if you're not a member, we'd love for you to come tonight and just kind of participate in this and see uh, what it is that we are talking about uh, doing. So I invite you to come to that. All right, well, we continue in our look at the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, um, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 36, through the third verse of the eighth chapter. And so I invite you then to hear these words. Luke writes this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And when he went into the Pharisee's house, he reclined to dine. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that she was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair, kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, 
But she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then she said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? But he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through one town and village after another, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who ministered to them out of their own resources." Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, on this beautiful morning, we are reminded of how every morning is new because you have created it anew. And we pray, Lord, that we would understand how in the same way that you create a new day. You constantly, Lord, are inviting us to be created new in you. So we pray on this morning, Lord, that we would hear and see and feel this story deeply. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. And amen. Well, now this story is even more difficult perhaps in some ways than many others because the context is just so radically different than ours that it can be really hard to know and understand exactly how this makes sense to us today. Let's begin then by trying to give a little bit more understanding of what the context is here. Now, back in that time, it was with some you know, regularity that there would be visiting rabbis or wise people who would kind of stumble into a town and they would be espousing views. Sometimes these would be different views or newer views, and they would be invited into someone's house, let's just say a Pharisee's house, so that they could come in. It was called a, a symposia, and they would come in and then they would eat together and they would bandy about all their different thoughts thoughts and opinions. And in that culture, they loved a good argument. And so they could argue back and forth about these things. It was a, a kind of an exciting time, if you will, when they all began to wrestle with whether or not what this person was saying was actually true or not. And so there they are, and they're here. And, and one of the big differences between that time and ours, especially here in America, is that there was not that same sense of public versus private that we have you know, and there's still some truth to it. Even now, when we were in Israel last year, um, 
There were several times when the whole sense of personal space, it seemed to me, was felt a little bit different. And people from Israel, they would be really close to me. And I would say, I would think to myself, I wouldn't say it, uh, can you please give me some space, right? We wanted some space. We all like a little bit of space. And, and we, of course, in our houses and all those sorts of things, we like space. We want to have some more space between us and our neighbors. It would be very strange, indeed, for a neighbor to just come over and walk into our house, would it not? If you don't believe that, you should. And when you do it to your neighbor, they don't like it. <laughs> but in this time, there was not that same kind of sense of, of private and public. And so oftentimes, especially when you had a symposia like this, people, strangers, they would just walk into your house. And they would sit around the room. They were invited. And sometimes they came because they wanted to hear more about whatever this visiting person was talking about. And sometimes they came in simply because they were hungry. And as they kind of stood around the corners of the room, they would wait for morsels of wisdom or morsels of food. So this is kind of the setting that we have in this particular situation. And, and of course, as you, as you may know, the, the, the way that they sat was also very different, of course. They would, uh, the, the tables were very low, and, and they would lean in on a particular elbow. Which elbow would they lean on? Their left elbow. Right, because the, the left hand was the one that they would go to the restroom with, right? We talked about this a while ago. So you, you would lean on your left elbow, and then that way you could eat with your right. And then your legs would go back. We have this kind of slide, I think. That's, it's not a great slide, but it gives you at least a sense. This is something of what it would have looked like. You see on their left elbows, they're eating on the right, and then their feet would go out because you would want your feet as far away from the table as possible because you're walking around in, in, in times, you know, with, with animals and all that on the ground and they're walking around and you can just imagine what your feet were like right so you would keep it as far away from the table as possible and this is exactly what's happening in this particular scene they're all doing this they're having this great meal now there's some disagreement on whether or not Simon uh, uh, really wanted Jesus to come in because he wanted to actually hear from him or whether or not he came in order to set a trap, and that's what Simon wanted. And there's good arguments both ways. I mean, Pharisees, as we've been able to see over our time, they oftentimes did not like uh, Jesus all that much. And so there's a good chance that perhaps he was just trying to trap Jesus. We also, of course, we see some of his character throughout this story, and you can, can begin to see that, well, maybe Simon's not the greatest of guys. Maybe he really was trying to catch Jesus. At the same time, there's a counter-argument, this is the one I kind of like, that says, look, just for Jesus or for Simon to even invite Jesus into his house was incredibly risky. Remember the quote, I said it a while back, I said that if you, uh, 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 this was kind of describing the ancient time, it said, uh, uh, tell me who you are eating with and I will tell you who you are. There was this great, your identity in this space was completely intertwined with whom you ate. And if you ate with a particular kind of people, then it was said, that's who you are. This is why then the, the Pharisees were saying, hey, why was Jesus eating with sinners and with tax collectors? Because clearly this must be who he is. And so when Simon invites this Jesus into his own house, he is taking a bit of a risk. 
And so I want us to always think about this when it comes to the Pharisees. There's this a more nuanced view of who the Pharisees were. They weren't always, you know, or all of them were not completely against Jesus. I think it's helpful for us to keep that in mind. So you have the sense, you have the context. Here they are. They're all sitting around. They're having a great time. They've got people surrounding them, listening. They're eating. They're, uh, you know, they're leaning on their elbows. Their feet are away from the table. Everything is going great. They're hearing all these thoughts. They're probably having massive arguments. This is like perfect. Everything is exactly as they would have liked it. And then she walks in. And immediately she goes over to Jesus. She had heard that Jesus was there. And she walks in. And what does she do? She begins to weep over his feet. And so all of a sudden, then the water's going on his dirty and dusty feet. And then she takes her hair out, which would have been remarkably taboo in that time for you to have taken off your hair. It was almost, if I can say it, like taking your shirt off. She takes out her hair. You should only do this in front of your husband. And she leans down and she begins to dry his feet with her hair. She also has an alabaster jar that she breaks open. And she begins to pour it over his feet. At the same time, she's kissing his feet again and again and again. It is this kind of outrageous moment. The Pharisee who had invited her, who we later discover his name is Simon, he begins to think something in his head. Now, pretty much every time that Luke talks about somebody thinking something inside their head, it is rarely a good thing that they are thinking about. And this is true in this particular situation. Simon thinks to himself, oh my goodness. Clearly, this man, not even Jesus, he can't waste the energy to say his specific name. This man is not a prophet, prophet, because if he was, there is he would know this sinful woman that she should not be touching him. Now, touch, again, is something that we have to understand. Uh, Maybe we get it more now after living through COVID when we were very afraid of a touch, if you will. But touch was not a good thing in this space. It was always assumed that if the unclean touched the clean, that the clean would be made unclean. That was the direction in which it headed. The unclean or the clean always became unclean whenever it was touched by the unclean. This is why they always had these rituals to try to get clean again. But you see, what Jesus has begun to do, maybe we've noticed this a little bit, Jesus has begun to reverse that. When he touches a leper, when he touches a dead man, instead of the, un, instead of the clean becoming unclean, actually when Jesus touches you, the unclean becomes clean. This is kind of, again, the upside-down kingdom that Jesus is preaching here, that he's beginning to bring in, that when you are touched by Jesus, those who are unclean become clean. So Jesus looks at Simon, and he says, I want to tell you a story at this point, because he knows the thoughts. He can tell what's going on. It's a very simple story, maybe the simplest of parables that Jesus ever tells. He says there's uh, two people. 
They owe money to the moneylender. One owes 500, the other owes 50. They can't pay it. So what happens? The moneylender cancels the debt. Can you imagine that? How good would that feel? Now, he says to Simon, which one loves the moneylender more? I suppose, Simon says, the one who owed more. And he said, yes, you have answered correctly. Now, let's remember this. Debt is not a fun thing now. But it was a torturous thing back in that time. The things that you could do to others if they owed you a debt were monumental. It was an incredibly difficult, it was a social problem debt was. In fact, when the Jews revolted against the Romans and took over their temple, the very first thing they did was find the book of debts and destroyed it. Genius. I keep wondering if I can take over the mortgage company and just find mine. Can you imagine and just rip that up? How wonderful would that be? But now the other interesting thing about this particular story, uh, Ken Bailey says this, is that in Aramaic, which is what Jesus would have spoken, the word for debt is the exact same word for sin. So here you go. Jesus is kind of handing this parable to Simon. This is not a hard one to understand, Simon. That clearly what he's beginning to say is, yes, already, whomever has more sin forgiven is going to love more than those who at least perceive themselves of having sinned less. Okay, one more contextual thing. Hospitality, you know this, hospitality was huge in this particular culture. And one thing that you would never do is you would never criticize the hospitality of someone. You know, even in our culture, right? If, 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 if I come over to your house and I'm there for a little while and, you know, I'm about to leave and I say to you, well, you know, I got to be honest with you, that food was pretty gross. <laughs> and you were great company. And I kind of only felt unwelcome. That would not go over well, True. In this culture, it would have been even more unheard of to have criticized, virtually unthinkable to have said anything negative about someone's hospitality. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus is about to do. But notice how he does it. You see, he doesn't just stare at Simon and look at him right in the eyes and say, hey, you know what, you stink. He actually says... Do you see this woman? Which means Jesus is turning and he's beginning to look at her and he's inviting Simon to also look at her. As someone has said, there's a sense of it begins to lower the defensiveness of Simon. And actually what he's doing in many ways is Jesus is inviting Simon into the story of this woman. You see her, you should know, Simon, that when I came in here, you gave me no water for, to wash my feet. And yet she has wept over them and cleaned them with her tears, Simon. 
You gave me no greeting of kiss, Simon, but she, as you can see, she's still kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil at all, but, but she is pouring this ointment over me. You see, the one who has sinned greatly loves greatly, and the one who has sinned little loves little. He looks at her and says, you are forgiven. The Pharisees, of course, always easily distracted and missing the point, begin to grapple with one another about who this is, you know, who's forgiving people. And Jesus, of course, he's astute. He knows this is happening, but he just is undeterred. He doesn't care. He just looks back at the woman and he simply says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Most commentators, for what it's worth, would suggest that this was probably not the first time that Jesus had met this woman, that she'd already been forgiven. That's kind of what the parable shows us, and now she's just showing her love about that. But what's likely is a couple of things. Either A, she needed to hear again her forgiveness, which I would imagine most of us would probably understand, or Jesus was wanting to be incredibly public about this forgiveness because it was clear that she had not yet been received back into the community. And Jesus needed her. What forgiveness is about is reconciliation and coming back into the community. And so in this public way, he is trying to help her to rejoin this, committed, this community that has turned its back on So this week has been kind of an odd week for me. And I'll tell you how it's been odd. Um, I have thought, I rarely think this, I mean really rarely, maybe two or three times in my time here. But as I kept thinking about ZPC, I wished that it wasn't Zionsville Presbyterian Church. I had wished a few times during this past week that instead the P stood for Pentecostal Church. Let me tell you why I had kind of wished that it was Zionsville Pentecostal Church. Uh, for one, uh, in all transparency, this week has been much busier than most of my weeks. Um, I, I just had a lot going on, trying to think through tonight and uh, uh, band practice uh, or band uh, uh, performance for my children, other things going on, that by the time I reached Thursday, I realized that I, I was not nearly as prepared to work on the sermon as I typically and I was frustrated by that. And in the midst of that frustration, I remembered several times growing up in the Pentecostal church or even when I was in college, I remember a worship service in the Pentecostal world where we would get together, you know, it'd be a normal Sunday and, and, and the music was going, but maybe this time the music was even louder and, and, and more eventful than normal. And, and the preacher, you could see, he was just kind of saying, you know, let's do it again. And you could kind of feel it, right? And so the dancing perhaps got even more joyful. The prayers got even louder and longer, right? And, and at some point the preacher would stand up and he would say, you know, I had a sermon ready for this morning, but it's clear the Holy Ghost wants you to hear from him and not from me. <laughs> and even as a kid, 
I wondered to myself, really? Or did you just not get that sermon done? And so I toyed just for a brief moment, but I toyed with saying, hey, Jason, I think we ought to go six songs. And if you're going to do a minute of silence, what's 10 minutes of silence? And then I could stand up and be like, well, look at the time, guys. I'm just going to wait till next week. But I have a sneaking suspicion, because this is Zionsville Presbyterian Church and not Zionsville Pentecostal Church, that you all might not let that slide. You would see through me. The second reason why I started thinking about Zionsville Pentecostal Church was because this week I heard a a sermon by a guy named Luke Powery. He was raised in the same uh, uh, Pentecostal tradition that my college was, and uh, his father was actually a, a preacher in that tradition. And, and I stumbled upon, there was a link I found, I stumbled upon the sermon that he preached. And I, I, you know, it's kind of, I forgot, maybe you remember this, maybe when you go back into your old hometown, and like the nostalgia, and you remember some of these things. And I remember kind of, I, there are parts of the Pentecostal sermon that I really love. I love the way they're, they're, they're wonderful uh, wordsmithing oftentimes and the imaginative depiction that they have of, of stories in Scripture and their emotion and the passion that so often comes out in a Pentecostal sermon. And I have to say, I, I, I realize I kind of miss that at times. Now, please hear me. I would much prefer to, re- to give and to receive a Presbyterian sermon, but there are times, it seems to me, when a Pentecostal sermon can maybe do something that a Presbyterian sermon cannot. There are times when it can unearth parts of a story that perhaps are a bit more engaged with the heart than necessarily with the head. The third reason why I really kind of started thinking about Zionsville Pentecostal Church this particular week was because, you know, after I typed out this first part of the sermon, I realized that I love giving context. I love talking about describing uh, uh, what's going on in that time and in that space. But I was also somewhat wholly unsatisfied with ending with that kind of sermon, because what I realized is that if all one does with this particular story is analyze it and dissect it and exegete it, then the likelihood is that we have not understood it. Because this passage, if we want to wholly understand it, we cannot just know it in our heads. We have to be able to feel this story. To feel what it would have been like to have been a woman, a second-class citizen merely for her gender, who was then made a third-class citizen because of her sin. Her name had become Sinful Woman. It was how she was known by others, and it is likely that it was how she had become known by her very self. And she has carried this burden, this shame with her, because no matter where she went, she always took herself. There was no running from it, no hiding from it, no getting past it. Weak. After week, month after month, 
year after year. It followed her like the darkest of shadows until at some point, and we do not know where, we do not know when, we do not know how, but at some point she met a man named Jesus who made it clear to her that sinful woman was no longer her name. That it was no longer her identity. That whatever it was that she had done, whatever brokenness she had experienced or participated in, that she was carrying a burden that she no longer had to carry. That Jesus took her from a woman that was merely looked at, perhaps because of what she could offer, to a woman who Jesus said was worthy of being seen. And what is so amazing about this story, quite frankly, for those of us who have the eyes to see, is that we get to experience the transformation that she has undergone. Because what we are seeing in this woman at this point is no longer a woman of shame, but a woman of determination. A determination that says, despite what she has been told, despite what she has done, that because of Jesus, she is free. And no one, no man, no woman, no religious priest, no rules or regulation were going to Keep her from expressing her love and gratitude about what Jesus had done for her. We need to feel this morning her determination, the fortitude and passion that she felt, and the fortitude and the passion that it would have taken for her to walk out of her past and into that house. Do you feel what it would have taken for her who had been shamed day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? No matter where she went, people would not look at her. No matter where she went, she was not welcomed. And on this day, she said to heck, she probably said something even more, with all of that, I am going to walk out of my past and I am going to walk into that house to see the man who has freed me from every burden. And if we stand as stoic Presbyterians from a distant and detached place as she storms into that room of privileged and proper etiquette, then we should be ashamed of ourselves because we have not seen her. We need to hear their heads as they awkwardly turn and look at her as she rushes past them and directly to Jesus. We need to hear her tears as they rain down. That's literally what the Greek says. As they rain down onto the feet of Jesus. We need to feel her vulnerability of letting her hair down with reckless abandon. As she begins to wipe away the puddles that had begun to collect on his feet. We need to be overwhelmed by the smell of the aromatic ointment of the freshly broken alabaster jar as she lavishly, graciously, generously pours it over the Messiah. We need to hear the ceaseless kissing as she unabashedly 
presses her lips on his feet again and again and again. Despite the stares, despite the shaking heads, despite the looks of shame and judgment that were directed her way. We need to feel her absolute freedom that she is expressing toward the one who freed her from the chains of shame that had defined her, that had anchored her to a place of despair and darkness and destruction. If we are going to understand this story, we have to not just appreciate it intellectually, but we have to feel it deep into our bones, our muscles, our tendons, our sinews, into our very hearts. Because we are seeing a woman who has gone from being a woman doomed to a woman delivered, from a woman of hopelessness to a woman of hospitality, from a woman who has become the one who was judged and preached against to a woman who has become the preacher. A preacher, as someone said, who's no, used no words, but whose transformed life has become the sermon. Make no mistake about it, this sermon that she is preaching is an invitation for those of us who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. It is an invitation to see not just what she had been or even what she has now become, but an invitation to see ourselves. But let me be clear. It is an invitation that we can easily turn down or away from out of our own place of dignity or defensiveness or downright hostility. You see, my concern is that when you remain a distant observer of Jesus, just like those Pharisees, when you allow skepticism or cynicism to be the lens through which you see the world or others or even yourself, or when we begin to believe that God only works in particular ways, then we can easily, almost joyfully, with great righteous indignation, look at this woman and shake our heads at her garish generosity, her vile vulnerability, her grotesque gratitude, her tasteless tears, her thoughtless theatrics, her pitiful posturing, and her burlesque-like brazenness. But if we choose otherwise. We can also realize that in this story, we are invited, just as Jesus invites Simon, to see this woman and to realize by seeing her, we are given an opportunity to lay down our walls that oftentimes look like decorum and dignity, but are simply defensiveness. And we begin to see in her brokenness our own brokenness. If we can begin to feel her shame, it will allow us to be honest about our own shame that we so often easily hide behind Facebook posts or fancy cars or nice vacations or private homes. If we can feel her sense of forgiveness it will be an invitation to feel the forgiveness of Jesus and the release that comes from knowing you no longer need to carry this burden anymore. 
if we can begin to feel her lavish, her exorbitant gratitude, then we can see it as an invitation to the kind of grateful life that comes from knowing that you are seen and yet you are still loved. That Jesus sees you and invites you as he did to that woman to be at the table. And I'm convinced that if we begin to genuinely see her, that we will begin to understand that all of us are Simon. You see, Luke never tells us what Simon ultimately chooses to do. Does he find himself with his fellow cynical, skeptical Pharisees and remain distant from the woman and from Jesus? as well as from his own sin? Or does he choose to genuinely see her and in so doing, perhaps for the very first time, see himself? You see, this morning, it is the woman who is the preacher. And she is inviting every single one of us to see her. To feel this experience with Jesus at the table. And in so doing, to feel what must the life of abundant forgiveness and reckless grace be like. On this day, I pray that we feel those tears. That we smell the ointment. That we hear the sermon, and know that we are invited, all of us, into a relationship with the one who invites us to the table, who sees us and tells us that we are forgiven, that we can be at peace. Do you see her sermon? Do you hear his invitation. For Christ and for Christ's glory. Amen? Let's pray. Far too often, God, we do not take the risk to be vulnerable and to see you. And in so doing, God, we do not take the vulnerability or risk it in order to see others and even more so to genuinely see ourselves. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be a people who are not afraid We can honestly acknowledge our own brokenness, our own fear, our own pain, our own sin. See, Lord, that rather than that being a place of shame, it is a place place of great deliverance. And as we offer those things to you, Lord, we might be surprised at how our lives are transformed. 
As we freely receive you, so too will we begin to freely give. For your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.